Onscript listeners, this is Matt Lynch, and I'm about to interview Allison Joseph on her new book, Portrait of the Kings. But before I do that, I wanted to do something a little bit different this week, because during the interview, we talk about the Deuteronomistic history, which I realize is probably a new concept for some of you. Many of you will be familiar with the idea if you've done some theological training, but I, I thought I'd give an overview of the idea of the Deuteronomistic history so that you have some background for the discussion that we have. So Allison Joseph's work, Portrait of the Kings, belongs within a larger conversation, a scholarly conversation, about the nature and formation of the Deuteronomistic history. So you may be wondering to yourself, what, what is that? And if you already know, you could probably skip ahead about 10 minutes, but I'm going to give a, a quick overview so that you have some context for this. That when scholars talk about the Deuteronomistic history, they're talking about the books that go from Deuteronomy through the book of Kings. So Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, not Ruth. And the idea is that these books share something in common. Uh, Deuteronomy, which is at the the head of this collection of books seems to impact those books in a way that other books are not impacted in the Hebrew Bible. So one of the basic questions behind that is why do why do these books in particular, that of uh, Joshua through Kings, bear the distinct imprint of the book of Deuteronomy in a way that other books, even books that came after Deuteronomy, don't? And so the scholars have theorized, well, what is it that that brings these books together? And it goes back, well, it goes back to a number of scholars, but one of them, uh, Wilhelm de Wette, was a German, in case you didn't know from the name. And uh, he lived back in like the late 1700s. And I don't have the exact dates, but anyway, de Wette theorized that when Josiah goes into the temple, and if you remember the story, he, he finds, well, his men find the the book of the law when they're clearing out the temple and cleaning it just they're just kind of going back through the temple to to uh clean it up a bit restore it and they find the book of the law and that kicks off this whole reform of Josiah when he reads the words of the law and he discovers that the people have been in covenant violation and what he needs to do in response to the law is tear down all the altars throughout the land smash the idols, and kill a bunch of illicit priests along the way. And so what Devetta said was that that book of the law was not, found, was not found during the reign of Josiah. It was written during the reign of Josiah. And it's not just the law as such, but it's specifically the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy was a document written to legitimate the reforms of Josiah. And so that... that uh, kicked off a bunch of discussion and uh, some years down the line. Uh, well, there are a number of people that play with that idea in different ways, but it wasn't really until Martin Note, another German scholar spelled N-O-T-H. It's not Noth, it's Note. And Martin Note noted haha, that the, the books of Deuteronomy through Kings bear the imprint of judges in a way that suggests that they were woven together as one great national epic. And so this is really at a shift in biblical studies from seeing the 
the the forms of biblical literature and the chunks of biblical literature and the pieces of the Hebrew Bible, and then asking how were they woven together into something larger? And that larger thing that they were woven into and um, constructed to become is called the Deuteronomistic history because at various points in those books, we see the stitching of the editor who used language and speeches and idioms from the book of Deuteronomy to punctuate the history and to give it coherence. And so we have things like great end of era speeches or um, at the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua 23 and 24 ends with a great speech uh, where Joshua looks back over Israel's history and then looks forward. And then in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel looks back over the time of the judges and then looks forward to the monarchy. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon looks back over Israel's history at the founding of the temple, and then looks forward all the way into exile. So these these speeches not only share the similar feature of being end and beginning of era speeches, but also that they use language from Deuteronomy in a way that's not used in the literature around them. And there are a number of other things. It's not just the speeches. There's narrative summaries in Joshua 12 and Judges 2, 2 Samuel 17, in, in various places. There's the promise to David, which is another thing that, that keeps recurring. And again, these things all use Deuteronomic language. And that suggested to Martin note that these are being woven together into a big history in order to explain the demise of the Hebrew kingdom or kingdoms, really. And it's, I think it's important to keep in mind that Martin Note is writing, uh, I think his book, um, The Deuteronomistic History, I have to check on this, but I think it came out in, during the Second World War. You can imagine the resonance of a German scholar uh, looking at this history and seeing that th- this really resonates with where we're at as a nation. We're looking back over this, uh, you know, our, our past, our history, and asking ourselves, how did we end up here? How, how did things become such a mess? And and so Note's major contribution is putting it all together, seeing the coherence of this body of literature, and also arguing that there's a kind of pessimistic tone, that this is all marked, marching inexorably toward exile. And the, the interesting thing about the end of the Deuteronomistic history is that it just kind of fizzles out with Jehoiakim being released by the king of Babylon to eat at the table, but you've got the king of Judah in exile in Babylon. Okay, he's eating at the king's table. Maybe that's hopeful, but but note uh, suggests that this is a very pessimistic history. The, the other scholar that's worth noting is Frank Moorcross, who's uh, from Harvard, and Allison's going to mention him. So I'll just briefly say that Cross's theory, and this has been very influential, is that there's actually a double redaction, uh, meaning there were, there were two major editions of the Deuteronomistic history. One during the reign of Josiah, which I alluded to earlier, although Devetta wasn't making a theory about a whole massive redaction. So Cross said the first redaction was during the reign of Josiah, and it was they went, the editors went back over the history and and 
told it in such a way that it led to its climax in the figure of Josiah, who is the king like David. He's more like David than anyone before him or anyone that came after him because he's loyal to the cult, uh, meaning the temple, and because he centralized religion, he centralized Judean worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, which is exactly what Deuteronomy 12 commands Israel to do, is to centralize worship in Jerusalem. Okay, and then there's a second redaction, which is the exilic redaction where things go belly up or pear shapes, what people say here in the UK, and things uh, go downhill. Uh, finally, let me just mention briefly that if uh, if you go to Germany now, one of the influential theories about the formation of the it was advanced by a man named Walter Dietrich, and it's called the uh, the triple redaction of of the Pentateuch of not the Pentateuch of the Deuteronomistic history, the triple redaction theory, and basically that's that there's a, a sort of Deuteronomic basic history the Grundschrift, or um, kind of foundational history that was then redacted by a nomistic editor, meaning um, namas, law, so a kind of legal redaction, and then finally a prophetic redaction. So you have these these three layers to the Deuteronomistic history, and there's probably something to that in that um, the Germans are pretty good at recognizing that the Hebrew Bible, in many places, not just here, is multi-layered and was redacted, edited, handed down through time. But the and the theory of Frank Moore Cross has probably won the day, uh, the double redaction theory, in North America and Great Britain. And so that just gives you a little bit of an overview of what we're talking about when we talk about the Deuteronomistic history. And Allison Joseph's book then is offering a theory about how the the material in the Deuteronomistic history might have come together in the Book of Kings. And she uses an idea, a a prototype model, which is interesting because she's suggesting that the idea that kings are patterned after David or, you know, they they either are like David or not like David is, is a construct of the Book of Kings because if you look at the profile of David, in Kings, it looks nothing like the profile of David and Samuel. And so how do you make sense of that? Well, she's also saying that that too comes from the time of Josiah. Josiah is the actual prototype, and then David's made to look like Josiah, so that Josiah ends up looking like David, if that makes sense. And then Jeroboam, who's the kind of anti-type, is patterned after that Davidic prototype then, and he becomes the this antithesis of David, who is not loyal to the covenant, not loyal to the temple. And then he becomes the measure by which all bad kings are measured. So you're like Jeroboam. And the Jeroboam-type kings are the kind of kings that ended up bringing Israel into exile. And the Davidic-type kings are the ones that prevented Israel as long as possible from going into exile. Of course, exile wasn't in view until after Josiah. But that's the... We'll get into her theory Uh, in the discussion. So I hope that helps you.
Welcome to On Script here today with Dr. Allison Joseph, who is a visiting assistant professor of Jewish studies at Swarthmore College in my home state of Pennsylvania. She's with us to discuss her book, Portrait of the Kings, the Davidic Prototype in Deuteronomistic Poetics, published by Fortress Press, uh, one of the winners of the Distinguished Manfred Lautenschläger Award for Theological Promise. Allison, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. It's great to be here. Allison, I was wondering, uh, just to start out, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps uh, your something of your background and how you became interested in biblical studies. Okay, so my background, I've been sort of all over the U.S. studying the Hebrew Bible. I started my undergraduate career at Barnard College and the Jewish Theological Seminary, then I went to Emory University in the South, and then I went to Berkeley for my PhD, and now I'm back here in the Northeast. And I first became interested in studying biblical studies when I was in high school. Uh, I start in my traditional, or I guess liberal, Jewish high school setting. We started learning documentary hypothesis, and for many of my classmates, this was shocking and disturbing. And I just said, wow, this makes so much sense. I totally get it. I totally see all of these inconsistencies in the text. And this totally makes sense to me to explain it in this way of different authorship. And so beginning there, I became fascinated with the idea of human authorship of the biblical text and the influences on those human authors from their historical context. And so I often think that I can draw a very straight line from that high school experience to sort of where I ended up in my writing my dissertation and uh, writing this book. Um, just looking at the idea of authorship and what are the factors that contribute to the way in which the biblical text was written. Yeah, that that sounds quite different from my high school experience. I, I, I don't even think I had heard of the documentary hypothesis in, in high school. So uh, that's that's amazing. Um, so, do you think it was there in high school that you thought, "Hey, I want to I want to study this for my career as well"? No, as- I started off pre med. I got to college. I did one year of biology, and I said, "This is the worst. I hate this. I cannot continue doing this for." however many years it takes. And so I thought, well, what do I want? What do I want to do? If I don't want to do this, what do I want to do? And at my college, there was, uh, we had these first year class dinners and a professor from another class introduced himself and said, you know, when I graduated from college, I was kind of confused. What should I do? And he said, I thought about it. And I said, what other profession do you get to think and talk and read and write for a living. And I said, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to do that. If that's a job, that sounds amazing. And so in some ways, the academic profession, I found the academic profession first, and then I had to say, okay, well, what is my subject? And I was really drawn to biblical studies. I was an undergraduate Hebrew Bible major, but I was also really interested in literature and literature and history. 
And through biblical studies, I was able to take kind of all of those interests and apply them to the text. Yeah, so I I could see why uh, you'd be attracted to a place like UC Berkeley, where you get to combine those interests uh, with, with some of the best. Yes, I definitely think that my Berkeley education influences my work. I like to think of it as the traditional historical critical Harvard School meets Robert Alter. And mm-hmm. I think that influence is really present in my work, looking at these kind of the traditional methods of biblical studies, the source and redaction criticism, text criticism, but then also a, a close attention to the literary quality and nuance of the text, because I think that it's there. And sometimes I think that's lost when scholars are working on redaction history that it's really about how can we tear apart the text. But at some point, it was put together. So was this just some random hack job and, you know, the redactor cut and paste it together? Or did he have more of an intentional plan in the way that he put the whole thing together? And most of the time, I fall on the side of the redactor was very intentional in his literary plan. And even though there remain inconsistencies and problems within the text, I think that he was usually usually had in mind what he wanted to do and how the tech he wanted the text to function, and so that he would use his sources in that way to try to um, accomplish those goals. Yeah, it's one of the things I really appreciated about your book, Portrait of the Kings, is that you were giving real credit to the the literary side of how the the historian was putting the in, in particular the book of kings together while also attending to uh, its editing redaction and formation so I, I think those two those two disciplines are often kept at a distance would you say that's something at berkeley that are that's intentionally brought together or is that something you kind of had to do on your own i think that it's very much a part of what's happening at Berkeley, uh, especially Robert Alter is not a biblicist. He his training is in Hebrew literature, and he came to work on the Bible late in his career. And he works really very well with my primary advisor, Ron Hendel, who comes comes out of the Harvard School. He was a student of Frank Cross, and Ron is really interested in all of these kind of literary philosophical things. And he loved to team teach with Alter. So the two of them would teach courses like the Psalms in in Bible and uh, modern Hebrew poetry. And so it would be filled with all of the Hebrew Bible students and all of the complet students teaching, uh, uh, learning Hebrew literature. And so there was a very intentional conversation, I think, between the senior scholars, uh, in the courses that were offered, and then the students who populated these courses. Going back to, for a moment to your early uh, kind of pre-med and then shifting to biblical or Hebrew Bible, w- when I did my undergrad degree, I started out as a math major, and and I took one math class, and then I said, I got to do something else. I jumped, I switched to business. Uh, but then I, I took a semester abroad, went to Israel, and it was there that I decided to pursue biblical studies. And I didn't really know much about it, what that involved. But I, 
went out to Colorado for a summer and I was in this used bookstore and I picked up Robert Alter's book, uh, The Art of Biblical Narrative. And uh, I read that and it just blew me away. And and so I think for, for listeners who aren't familiar with, with his work, he's had an enormous impact. And, and it's really interesting that he's not a biblicist in the first place, uh, but came to that later. But he's had such a massive impact on the field of literary studies in the, of the, the Hebrew Bible. So looking at the Bible as a, an intelligent body of literature rather than uh, uneducated, primitive, tribalistic um, authors of the past. So uh, yeah, he had a big impact on me. I don't, I don't, I don't know Hendel's work as well, but I know he's um, done a lot of stuff in Genesis. Yeah, my experience of reading the Art of Biblical Narrative as an undergraduate was also very similar. Uh, that it was a transformative event, I think, in my yeah. intellectual development, especially yeah. the idea of the type scenes that he talks about that in literature or film or whatever, that we have these kind of stock characters or stock motifs that show up again and again. And it's not because no one can think of anything new, but because they're so good. And by using these patterns, you can bring with it kind of all of the information that you might know from all the other times the pattern was used and then put it into a new context. And so when I read that and started thinking about the biblical text, that was just mind blowing. And what's so funny is that I think in the past 35 years, uh, Robert Alter has really come around much more to the necessity of that traditional historical critical work of biblical scholars, but the art of biblical narrative in very, in many ways is very antagonistic to the field of biblical studies. Yeah. And I think at it probably at its time, it was a necessary disruption. It's a, it's a helpful corrective to the idea that writers in the Hebrew Bible just didn't really know how to, um, how to write good literature. It wasn't until the Greeks came along that that really happened. So, well, I could, I could see then in, in hearing your uh, talk about the type scene, how that maybe uh, played into uh, the development of the idea of the prototype in, in the Book of Kings. Was that, was that influential for you then, specifically in, as you went to write Portrait of the Kings? Yes. So <laughs> I think when I first start talking about the idea of what I call the prototype strategy, mm -hmm. I do reference... Uh, Robert Alter's uh, type scenes, very much so, because this idea that a pattern might exist and as a tool for an author. And the pattern is used to both convey lots of information that we don't we don't need to tell you, right? Any fairy tale that it starts off with a stepmother, you kind of know what's going to happen. Right. She's not going to be very warm and fuzzy and take care of this kid. You already know that. They don't have to tell you. Um, and so the idea of and so Alter's idea of these types of motifs is very much uh, at the front of my mind when I was thinking about how are the kings presented? The kings seem to be presented in one model and either you are part of this model or you are the opposite of the model. And so when when the 
history comes together and the historian focuses on the various kings, he slots them into this pattern. Yeah, so so you're um one of the theories that you adopt in in your your book is is that of the double redaction of the Deuteronomistic history. Do, do you want to talk briefly about what that means and then why it's significant for your argument? Sure. So the idea of the double redaction theory is um, one that actually is credited to Frank Cross in a book that he wrote in the 80s about the Book of Kings representing uh, two major strands of redaction. The first one happened in the pre-exilic period sometime in the late 7th century around the reign of King Josiah, and a second update that happened after the exile in which the theological ideas needed to be recast to get them in line with the historical reality of exile, destruction of the temple, end of the monarchy. So this was, uh, when Cross came out with this, this was in opposition to the prevailing idea at the time, which was the work of Martin Note, who said that there was one redactor um, who wrote in the exilic or post-exilic period, and the entire history has a very negative stance. But I have to say that uh, when these theories are put out, talking about Note and the school that follows Note, which is primarily... Uh, German and the school that follows Cross, which is primarily American, coming out of Harvard, they're in the, I think, nineteen early 19th century, Heinrich Ewald also started with a theory of double redaction, but I just want to give him a little credit because he is yeah. often forgotten in this conversation. Yeah, he's eternally grateful. <laughs> but for Cross... He came and said, no, this history is not completely negative. Yes, they're negative parts. It's horrible that we were exiled and Jerusalem is destroyed and there's no more Judean king. And what happened to the uh, Davidic promise? This is all very terrible. But you can sort of cut some of that away and see that a lot of the history is very positive. And it's positive about kingship. It's positive about the idea of a Davidic king and the Davidic dynasty being eternal. And so he was really trying to say, look, we have this pre-exilic history, which represents the greater part of the Book of Kings, which is positive. And it's only in the exilic context when, yes, everything was pretty bad at that time. The theology is sort of in crisis, uh, the Judeans are now in exile in Babylonia. Uh, that was pretty negative. And so we then get this secondary negative um, stance or overlay onto the book. And so for me, the, adopting this double redaction theory was pretty significant because when I look at the kings, the climax of the history really is the reign of Josiah. And so that's where I date the primary redaction of the history to the reign of Josiah, uh, because he is the best king, not just the best king by far, 
he surpasses any king who ever lived or any literary construction of any king. And if you only look at Josiah's reign and he put he institutes this great reform, if you put that into the context of the exilic period, it to me it seems so ridiculous. The idea of why did did Josiah even bother with reform if the fate of Judah was already determined? I really think that if According to the biblical text, Josiah instituted this reform. It has with its purpose to save Judah from the fate that's threatened. But if they're if the if they have already suffered the fate and gotten the punishment and are living in exile, he looks kind of silly. Why did he bother to do this? And I think that it takes away from what the historian is trying to do in showing Josiah as the ultimate king. Yeah, that's that's a really helpful overview. And and I think in addition to uh the fact that it doesn't make sense in exile is also the 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 fact that the story of Josiah makes an about face right at the end and says, "Yeah, everything was fantastic and he's the most amazing king ever, but God didn't turn away from his wrath and things were headed for exile anyway. So there's this, you know, something has to account for that uh, uh, 180 degree turn right at the end of the story. Right. And I think that accounting is where the second, the second redaction, that exilic redaction comes in because Deuteronomy or the Deuteronomistic history is filled with this theology of if you keep the covenant, you will be rewarded, and if you don't, you will be punished. And so this continues throughout the history. And the the account of the destruction of Israel that we find in 2 Kings 17, uh, which happened in the year 721, it's very much, the purpose of it is didactic for the kingdom of Judah. You know, Judah, watch out because look what happened to them. Look what they did with their worshiping at the high places and not following the covenant and not being, um, not being focused and of in observing all of the laws and the statutes. Look what they did. Don't be like them. And so then it happens. Judah is destroyed. The monarchy is over, the temple is destroyed, and then the people are exiled to Babylonia. And so they're in Babylonia, and they kind of have a few options of what to do theologically. One option is to just throw it out altogether. This theology did not come come true. This was a false theology. Let's get rid of it altogether. The... Second option is, well, we're going to keep going with this. And I think that's where we get the development of the idea of a Davidic Messiah, right? There was a Davidic promise. And this is sort of a blip on the screen that the theology and the promise is still valid. So we're just going to wait for it to come into fruition in the future. 
And then the third option is somewhere in the middle. We need to revise our theology. So there must have been a reason, even though we had this great king, Josiah, there must have been a reason that Ju Judah was destroyed, and it was because they did all the bad things that the prophets warned them not to do. And so then the a an exilic historian recast Manasseh as the explanation for why all this stuff happened. Yeah, so let me um, go back to Josiah for a moment. And one of the things that you point out in your book is that the reason Josiah is described as so great is because he is a king like David. And one of the uh, one of your key observations is that the depiction of David in Kings is is very different from the one that we see in Samuel. So when you read about Josiah being like David, you might be thinking to yourself, if you've read Samuel's Samuel, well, that doesn't seem like what David was like because he, well, first of all, he's a mixed character person in in terms of uh, you know being obedient, disobedient to Yahweh, uh, and and also. It, he he's not exactly a kind of cult reformer. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the depiction of David in Samuel versus the depiction of David in Kings and then how the his portrait in Kings becomes a prototype? Sure. So uh, just sort of a funny anecdote about this. Um, when I set out to write this book, I thought I was writing about the kings and kings. I was really interested particularly in Jeroboam and Manasseh, the worst of the bad kings. And that's what I started this book. I was writing about the kings and kings. How did the historian write his history? Um, and so then I wrote the book. I turned it in. I got it. They put um, The publisher chose the cover. They put this um, beautiful 12th century mosaic picture of King David on the cover. And then I started talking to people about my book. And they're like, oh, what's your book about? And I started, oh, the kings and uh, Jeroboam and Manasseh. And then I realized that the book is really about David. I didn't know until long after it was printed that this was really a book about David. And perhaps it's about David in absentia, but it is about David nonetheless, which lots of people write books about David. I just didn't know that I was one of them. Luckily, the publisher knew. They put him on the cover. And so when I say that the book is about David, even though David dies in the first two chapters of Kings, it's because his legacy is pervasive throughout the book of Kings. And that's really what I'm looking at in the idea of a Davidic prototype, that the David we meet in Samuel is a very interesting character. He is probably the most developed biblical character that we meet in the entire corpus. He is very balanced. He has a lot of feelings. He does lots of good things, but he does a lot of bad things, including adultery, murder. Uh, he's a usurper. He is very careful not really to get his hands dirty. You can't directly pin most of the murders on him. But he sends people. He's like the mob boss who has the henchmen. He sends them out to do his dirty work so that he can maintain his innocence. And so the David we meet in Samuel is really not the kind of role model figure that we want for our our kings. Um, 
I thought you were going to say our kids for our kids. For our kids either. (laughs) Um, But he, he is a deeply flawed, very human character, which I think is part of the appeal of King David. You know, David is probably one of the most well-known biblical figures. His artistic side as the musician or as the great uh, giant slayer uh, have led, have, left like a very powerful mythology about him. But all this other stuff is really quite horrible. And so then we get to Kings where he is held up as the standard for the good Kings. And why is he the standard for the good Kings? Because he was so wholehearted in his dedication to Yahweh and in his observance of the laws and statutes, testimonies and commandments. Well, Samuel didn't talk about really any of the laws and statutes, testimonies and commandments. Those are the kind of the phraseology that we see in Deuteronomy and the phraseology that we see in the evaluation of the kings and kings. But we see very little of it in Samuel. And part of that is probably because the hand of the Deuteronomistic historian is very light in the book of Samuel. The composition history of Samuel is pretty interesting, but there must have been pretty complete narratives, stories about David, uh, talking about his rise, talking about his success, the succession after um, following his reign, uh, that were pretty complete narratives that were circulating and then the historian just kind of loosely threaded them together and so we don't see a lot of the deuteronomistic phraseology in the book of samuel with the exception of the chapter um second samuel 7 which scholars have identified as uh, a deuteronomistic production and so in that way, it's not that surprising that we don't see a David and Samuel who is the uh, adherent to the covenant. But then he gets adopted and recast in the book of Kings, where he where the descriptions of him or the instructions that he gives directly to Solomon and then are passed on to the subsequent kings are Do this. Be faithful to the covenant. If you follow all the laws and statutes, you will have a long and peaceful reign. This is the way that you go about being a good king. He doesn't say just as I was, but you sort of expect it. And then later on, some of the kings are evaluated as either being like David or not like David. And so we have to assume that being like David means following all these things. So when when the uh, subsequent kings are are compared to to David then they're compared in terms of whether they did what was right um, in in the eyes of Yahweh uh, whether they're like David and whether they got rid of the high places where did these ideas come from then do you think is is this purely the invention of the Deuteronomistic historian or where, where do you think these uh, criteria then uh, came from and how they got linked to David well so I think part of this is if you are adopting this, double redaction theory, and you think that the primary history comes from the time of Josiah, and your scribes want to highlight Josiah as the best king, well, what better way to do it than not to say, look, Josiah is the best ever, 
But here's the standard for the best ever, and look, Josiah is just as good, or maybe he's even better. So that this gives it sort of maybe a false modesty coming out of the court of Josiah. Not just saying, look, our king is the best ever, but he is... His, he stands up to the historical model of best kings. And so when you're looking at who am I going to establish as my historical model, yet even though David did all these not good things, he still is acclaimed as the father of the Davidic dynasty, right? We The house of Saul, um, as the first king, is kind of lost. And so the Davidic dynasty... And the house of David is then seen as the true, uh, the true rulers of Israel. And even during this time of the schism of the kingdoms, it's still the Davidic dynasty is on top. And so they needed to find a model. But the what was important to them was this uh, strict adherence to the covenant and this Deuteronomic theology. And so... This is where I really see that idea of what was the historian trying to do? How was he trying to make his history successful? And that the entire book of Kings is really aimed at showing the kings and the people how to behave. And how to behave means centralization. It means um, following the commandments and uh, subscribing to this Deuteronomistic theology. And so they needed a model. And so what better way than to use a model of the past who had a kind of mythic legacy, right? Even even, even today, if you ask people about King David, most people would leave out the parts where he stole someone else's wife. And then after he got her pregnant, he had him killed. Uh, they'll talk about David, the musician. They'll certainly talk about David and Goliath. Um, and so... He, this is a great model. This is the way kind of this historiography works. We're looking for heroic models to hold up. And so if instead of just saying Josiah is really great, they can say Josiah is like David um, or create a model that looks just like Josiah. And we're like, look, this is so great. This is our model. And look, our king is just like that. In a lot of ways, it's more effective than just kind of putting up statues of Josiah all over Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, it, it was interesting when you were, when reading your book, one of the things that struck me was that the book of Chronicles, one of the things that it does is it retells the stuff from Samuel using the model of kings uh, of David. And so David then in, in the stuff that's drawn from Samuel and Chronicles becomes a kind of cult reformer. Because he, he takes the idols from the Philistines and he burns them, uh, just like it says in Deuteronomy that you should do. And he prepares the way for the temple. And he bec in, in many ways, I, I feel like Chronicles uh, is reading David in Samuel through the lens of kings, uh, precisely because of this, the power of this prototype as it's stamped on different kings in either like evaluative uh, good way or bad way. I think that is definitely happening, that Chronicles is reading David through the lens of kings. And kings, or some proto-version of kings, was likely the source for the chronicler. And so 
The account of David is also pretty whitewashed. We don't have those kind of conflicting, flawed uh, characteristics of David that we see in Samuel. And so the legacy of David in Kings is really, um, really stands and influences the way that David is seen from that point on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to see that, that kind of process of historiography from Samuel through Kings into Chronicles. And I know it's not quite that neat in terms of uh, the history of the formation of those books, but you do, there is something of that kind of progression. Um, And it just, it, it struck me, you know, in this sort of political season right now where we have a, uh, there, there's a tendency among some to sort of look to this idyllic past, like make America great again, make, let's bring the great Britain back to the early days when things were good. And, um, you know, the power of creating a national narrative that has the good old days when we had a real King. I definitely think so. And maybe that was also one of my goals in the book and sort of where, at least the beginning of the book starts before I start thinking about the individual kings is this idea of how do we read history? And this is relevant um, for our contemporary context. How are we reading text? How are we reading history? How are we reading the way that the past has, is told to us? And that's why I begin the book with the story of Paul Revere and the idea that, so Everybody knows this famous poem, uh, Henry Longfellow, uh, Wadsworth Longfellow, that he he talks about Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. You would think that Paul Revere like saved the the colonies from the British attack, right? One if by land, two if by sea. Everybody learns this. We know this, but this was not the true historical account. Uh, Paul Revere only made it about eight miles and then spent the evening in jail. And when he set out, he was with two other guys. And so what happens is uh, Longfellow writes this poem on the eve of the Civil War when the nation is about to tear itself apart. And he tells this story of this great hero. And then that poem becomes the source of history. It becomes the source of children's textbooks on American history. And it's only very recently that people are realizing, oh, this is not exactly what happened and are revising history to be more accurate. So if this happens in uh, the mid-19th century, why couldn't it have happened in the 7th century BCE that the historians were, yes, they wanted to um, they wanted to present the past. They wanted to do as good a job as they could to accurately present what happened in history. But at the same time, they have other reasons for why they they are writing their history, right? They want to create heroes. They want to uh, bolster national morale. They're creating national identity. All of these kind of things go into play in historiography that's very different from sort of a chronistic account of in this year this king did x and in that year he did y and then this happened and this guy invaded and that the 
writing together of these individual events is the job of the historian. You need to explain how they're connected and what are the um, causal relationships between events, and you're explaining why they happened. And so that's where the perspective of the historian comes in. And I think that's why David gets cast as this model. And then the other kings are sort of fit into this pattern of the prototype. Either you are like David, which means you're good, or you are not like David, which means that you're bad. And so then going back to this idea of altars with the idea of the type scenes, as soon as you say you are like David or not like David, everybody knows what that means. That this is kind of a code word that you know what comes with it. I don't need to then tell you a long thing. Like David, not like David. Good, bad, right? You're wearing the, in, Alter uses the example of Westerns. The white hat and the black hat. You know who those figures are without a historian or a director or anyone telling you anything. And and I think that's really helpful uh, in in moving away from an idea that the Deuteronomistic historian was somehow a, I don't know, a, a very unsophisticated uh, writer that just thought in binary uh, simplistic terms. But actually, there's a there's an important literary function uh, for those those types, those scenes that that give us a kind of pack a lot in simple terms so that you don't have to expand it at that moment, but that presupposes some of the expanded version told earlier. Um, and, I, and I think one of the things that I find interesting about considering the Deuteronomistic history is that it does both the caricature of David. It offers that simple picture of a man with a devoted heart and kings coming after him who were devoted or not. Uh, but also it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't delete the more complicated uh, dynamic picture of David. It keeps that in the story as well. So you almost get the, the, the caricature and the, the, the com- complex picture, and then you have later on, even in Chronicles, the, again, a different kind of caricatured history uh, that presupposes the more nuanced history that came before it. So I, I think that ability, to, and that might be a difference with Paul, from Paul Revere, is that Paul Revere gives you that that mythic poem. Granted, it's only a poem, um, whereas Deuteronomistic history it gives you the simple version and then tells the, the the more complex stuff as well. Yeah, and I think that's why David, for so many people even today, is a sympathetic figure um, because he is very human. Right, most of the biblical characters we meet are are not human, right? They're very kind of uh, one-dimensional, right? Joseph always held up as a paradigm of um, modesty. He uh, is able to rebuff the the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife, you know, and it's like, it's easy for him, right? He just goes and like, oh no, uh, and runs away. Well, so that's that doesn't um, reflect real people's feelings, um, but David is very real. Yeah, yeah. So um, b- before we go, I, I wonder if um, you could just say a bit about some of your current research projects or interests. 
So right now I'm working on a project that looks at women's sexuality and intermarriage in the post-exilic period. Um, this may seem very kind of different from uh, my work in Portrait of the Kings, but really I'm starting with the story of Dina in Genesis 34, where we see this um, very violent account of of her brothers getting revenge on an entire town of people um, because of the sexual coupling between Dina and uh, Shrem, the prince of the town. And so I'm really looking at this story as the beginning of this larger work as uh, what's really at stake here. Um, that in, in the ancient world, women... Uh, didn't have power of sexual consent, that their sexual consent only belonged to their fathers or their brothers and then to their husbands. And so looking at Dina as a figure who is mentioned by name once in the chapter, and she is only the subject in this first verse, uh, and the rest of the time she's an object that is acted upon or acted for. And so... Um, looking at her as a model to start thinking about, you know, what about women's sexuality in uh, this period? And then also the idea that intermarriage in a post-exilic period is um, a crime that's punishable by death. And that that's not really the case in an earlier tradition, that in the Pentateuch we see some competing traditions, ones that are earlier in which intermarriage maybe was not the best thing ever to do, but it was certainly not a capital crime, and then a later one that needs to be um, punished by death and uh, or in the historical context, the returnees from exile, um, Ezra tells them, you need to like get rid of your foreign wives that you picked up in Babylonia. Um, and uh, so it's not just a don't do it. It's you need to undo what has already been done. And so, um, yeah, so this is the project that I'm working on now. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a fantastic project. And I look forward to to seeing that. So, Allison, thank you so much for joining OnScript and for your fantastic book. That was my pleasure. You've been listening to OnScript conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.